Welcome to episode 110 of The Crux of the Story, where we discuss the art, science, and practice of communication and its impact on society. This is Gary Sheffer of Boston University's College of Communication. My co-host of The Crux is Mike Fernandez, CCO at the global energy company Enbridge. Hello, Mike. Hello, how you doing? I'm doing well. Hey, I, I saw I got a, a note the other day that you're speaking at the Page Society's Diverse Futures program, which brings together high potential communicators of color for a week of learning and discussion. Mike, what are you planning to talk about in your session? Um, you know, Diverse Futures, really the, the brainchild of Mark Carter who used to be the head of strategy for CNN and is well known throughout the news industry. More than a decade ago, as consolidations were taking place throughout the news business, he was concerned that as the industry got squeezed, many talented, diverse individuals uh, would be squeezed out of the business in the process. So he established Diverse Future. Um, there were a number of uh, key foundations that provided the seed money for it. <clears throat> But it was a vehicle for diverse news professionals to better take control of their own careers. As that program grew and became more successful, some of us spoke with Mark about broadening that effort to include PR and communications professionals. Uh, so to your question, more important than what I plan to say will be the questions the participants have and the discussion that will follow, uh, which will help them better navigate their own careers. And having seen some of the resumes mm -hmm. of this year's participants, I think we may have some future CCOs and CMOs uh, in that group. Now, that's terrific. You know, uh, I've uh, spoken at that uh, conference several times and kept in touch with some of the attendees and it's been a great experience for me in, including Bradley Akiburo who was on the crux uh, uh, uh. so that's November 27th through the 30th and it's taking place by the way in Rhinebeck New York which is right in my backyard you know the great Hudson Valley let's uh, jump to today uh, we've got the privilege uh, of having Matt McDonald on the crux uh, welcome, Matt, to uh, to our podcast. Thanks for having me today. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. So Matt is a senior partner and president of the recently launched Penta, which describes itself as the world's first comprehensive stakeholder solutions firm. Many of our listeners know Matt from his work with Tony Fratto at Hamilton Place Strategies, which was one of the founding companies of Penta. I don't know, Matt, if it says anything about you, but Tony was the guest on episode 41 of the crux and here you are at 110 but i'll let you <laughs> and tony fight that out matt has served as a senior counselor to leaders in public and private sectors for more than two decades providing guidance at the intersection of communication and business strategy 
and get a load of this resume. It always makes me, you know, sort of jealous when I when I introduce people with Matt's kind of background. He was a consultant for McKinsey and Company and served under Pre- President Bush as associate communication director at the White House with responsibility for economic issues. He served in senior roles on three presidential campaigns, including those of Mitt Romney and John McCain. And on top of all of that, he earned an MBA from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT. Matt, let's get into the questioning. Uh, Penta serves a, a majority of the Fortune 50 companies and their associations. What kind of work is Penta doing for your clients? Yeah, we um, well, we're a you know a full service for, firm. Um, we so it ranges. I mean, one of the one of the ways I might think about it is that um, you know we get pulled into all the demands that the internal communications function in companies get pulled into, which is basically everything. So we, <laughs> you know, we work on um, reputation and brand issues. We'll work on regulatory issues. Um, you know, I would say over the past couple of years, there's been a lot more on employee engagement as kind of the the world within between HR and communications has has blended a bit more. Um, you know, we have a creative services function, and we've been doing. Um, there's been some interesting work recently around um, marketing and and uh, call it vetting of different um, partnerships or campaigns as as kind of that world has had a different exposure to kind of public dialogue and, and social trends. Um, we, you know, we work on transactions for for companies mm-hmm. that are either acquiring, being acquired, thinking about IPOs, that sort of stuff. So it's a pretty broad range of uh, the type of work that we're doing. And it, it tends to be whatever the whatever is on the hot stove at the moment. to think we're distinctive and but um, in particular the company's been built around a couple of premises that we think are driving the future of communications right so um, one of those is kind of a uh, stakeholder centricity so you know thinking about the world through the lens of your your key stakeholder groups um, another is th- having a predictive orientation on what's around the corner and how to think about what's around the corner. You know, so many people in the discipline, I think, can get into a spot where you can get on your back foot and it's it's just very difficult to operate from that posture. So we really try and look around the corner. Um, and then I would say the third thing that we think about is that we're, we're a very um, data native company. I mean, especially for um, communications in general, but probably half of our business or business lines are based on research and data um, from kind of uh, analyzing and understanding the world as it exists out there to having proprietary data on the different audiences and stakeholder groups that that our clients are One of the things I want to dig in a little bit more, you know, when the six firms came together, the descriptor... Uh, that all of you use for Penta was a stakeholder solutions firm or company. What does that mean? And how is that any 
different from what we would see from any other traditional um, public full service public relations firm? Yeah, sure. The the way that I guess the way that we'll we would outline it is that we think about the stakeholder universe, uh, you know, as what we call the kind of four corners of stakeholders, which is uh, employees, investors, customers, and then political actors, you know, and across those four, there's kind of a different version of it for every company. And that might be, you know, it means something if you're publicly traded or not. It means something if you are a B2B company or a B2C company. It means something if you're in a highly regulated sector or not, right? Are you unionized? Are you not unionized? You can think across those those kind of four corners as meaning something a little different for each client. But I would say we see a few trends in the space broadly that I think calls for more focus and understanding across those different dimensions, right? And, you know, one of the things that I, I would say we see a lot in clients is those four groups sitting in different silos. And I think most companies are wrestling with or thinking about how you either break down those silos or coordinate among those silos. It's not, you know, oftentimes I see where the responsibility for those groups doesn't come together until it rolls right up to the CEO at the very top. And that can create a lot of issues if you're saying one thing to analysts on Wall Street and saying something else to uh, members of Congress in a testimony, right? Right. Having a calibration between the values of your employees and what your customer base is like is really important. So you can see where there's kind of a, a, a challenge of those that siloing that exists. And the and part of the way that we think about it is having a deep understanding across those four corners, what each of those groups um, sees, thinks, does, and how you measure that um, quantitatively to get a really deep understanding of the world that you're operating in. Now, how do you handle the fact that sometimes these are not discrete audiences, right? An employee can be an investor. An employee certainly has a a, a political mooring, if not an allegiance. Um, uh, an employee can meet all of those boxes. Uh, so, so how do you how do you account for that, particularly in a world where, you know, anyone can sort of peek into any other channel? you know, in terms of communications channels, you know, so that where we thought in the past that we could isolate different audiences, have discrete messages, uh, we sometimes have messages that not only seep those boundaries, but explode. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. We The world is not as cleanly divided as the four groups that I laid out. Even within those groups, you know, you need to have an understanding of within employees. There's, there's very different perspectives, there's different points of leverage, you have to have an understanding of kind of who are your primary stakeholders, who are your secondary stakeholders, if you're publicly held, you know, major shareholders. I mean, there's, there are layer, there is layer upon layer upon layer to this. I think part of what we try to work with clients on is both, you know, at least breaking down the silos so that there's good coordination. I think that, I think that poor decision-making often comes, it's mostly out of ignorance. It's not out of malice. It's not like, oh, I'm trying to, you know, 
<laughs> trying to uh, gain for my group at the expense of something else. It's just that you don't have that visibility. I do think that's part of the reason that we have a, a pretty data-driven approach on this is that it can be difficult to, for a variety of reasons, it can be difficult to assemble a room of decision makers where they have total visibility across the stakeholder groups and the nuances across those stakeholder groups. I think that, I mean, the the world of the past two years is littered with car crashes of companies that just really kind of don't understand the environment that they're operating in or the groups of people that they're communicating to or not communicating to, or to your point, Mike, um, you know, communications channels that they thought were kind of um, targeted end up being like just a shotgun blast that that creates train wrecks everywhere. So um, so anyway, that's that's the way I would say we we approach our thinking on that. So, Matt, when uh, when I was at GE, of course, we were um, very happy customers of Hamilton Place Strategies worked with you and Tony and the team for many years and goodness knows we had some complicated issues in Washington and elsewhere when you think about it and and really tried to establish inside the company a public affairs practice that was sort of in a swim lane between pure PR and government relations and and I I know that uh, at Hamilton Place Strategies, you always stress that you were an analytical public affairs uh, firm. You've uh, gone into that a little bit. Um, you, you do have a deep understanding of economics and politics, given your own experiences and the experiences of the team. How is that carried over into Penta? And, and specifically, uh, I, I'm struck by the comment you just made about companies not understanding the environment they're in uh, at times? Yeah, we, you know, I would say in in Penta world, obviously the work at, you know, different parts of the company have done work outside of kind of public affairs as traditionally understood. Um, so we've, you know, the, the company is kind of broader than what Hamilton Place Strategies was uh, in, in conception. I would say that there's there's a but there's a shared approach to a very substantive mm-hmm. approach to communications. Certainly, kind of a um, analytical rigor across the work. I think the real change is that you know while you know Hamilton Play Strategies was definitely a, a kind of a public affairs firm, is that the scope of research that we're doing now for clients in terms of you know, understanding and analyzing the media environment, understanding it and, and um, surveying different um, stakeholder groups and, and with a particular focus on really hard to reach audiences that are really important to our clients. That's kind of how I would say it's expanded. I, I think, you know, I would say that, you know, to, to kind of drill down from the world that I came from, kind of the political side is that it wasn't uncommon in I'm sure it's still not uncommon in different places of like, you know, I would talk to people about their skill set or what they do from a communications perspective. And they would, it would kind of be, it would fall into the category of like, well, I, you know, I work with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, work with maybe the policy team or maybe the political team. And I, I simplify it down into kind of like talking points. That Easy to understand, understand language, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, 
I think that there's, I think that there's still, I mean, that's still critically important. I, I think though that the evolution of communications into a business critical role one way or another means that, you know, you can't, you can't just be the person that provides the, oh, here's the, sim- here's the simple right. The wordsmith. You have to, <laughs> yeah, you have to really engage on the substance at a strategic level in, you know, material ways. And so I would say the part of the piece, part, part of what we have been doing and continue to try to do as we, uh, as we've launched Penta is to have that substantive focus at the center of it. I don't, th- you know, mm-hmm. it, there are, there are moments where a, uh, an error in a business is becomes a communications problem and there has to be enough kind of communications, uh, understanding and value within the organization to prevent something like that happening before it happens. Um, I just, and I think that the integration of it into kind of the foundations of the business is really important. And Matt, what, what, what underscores that too is it's interesting as a practitioner, I find even myself today, I probably use data three times more than I did 10 years ago. Um, and, and I'm a data geek. I'm somebody who, you know, has been doing kind of political polling of one kind or another um, throughout my entire career. But to your point, I think that the, the, the real tough nugget here is not just being a communicator, uh, but being a problem solver, right? Yes, I, I think that is, I think that's definitely correct. We have you know, in, in our work, we we probably borrow as much from kind of more traditional management consulting techniques as much as traditional communications mm-hmm. techniques in terms of training and how we approach the work internally. Um, you know, I I remember, you know, I, and I've, I've had like a little bit of a strange career in kind of moving back and forth between the business world and the political world and that sort of stuff. But, you know, uh, Washington is a town full of lawyers. There's very few MBAs. Work tends to get done in memos. Um, And I, you know, I can recall having um, multiple clients where they'll they'll come to a C-suite meeting with like their memo or whatever. And like, you know, that world works in decks. And it's it's just like there's a there's a there can be from the big things to the little things, there can just be like miscommunications sometimes between internally of how like the business units function and how kind of uh, communications, public affairs can function yeah. sometimes. Well, it speaks to the silos you were talking about, Matt, earlier. I, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm not a data geek. You know, I, 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 I like data. I, I like leadership too. One of the things that being a problem solver, to Mike's point, is is about being a leader and understanding your role and sort of reaching across silos uh, before problems happen to, as you say, build a deeper understanding of it. And, and so I, I want to jump back to a problem a lot of companies are wrestling with today. And I'm reading more and more about it this morning on what companies should be saying about Israel and Gaza, if anything. And um, I'm sure you're giving some advice to clients now uh, about that. 
or Ukraine and Russia when it uh, when that happened uh, a while back. So how should communicators be thinking about that today, Matt, with the Penta overlay? What is it that um, uh, should be a priority for them from a data standpoint, or at least from an awareness standpoint, and making a recommendation to senior leadership about uh, where you go on this one? Yeah. Um, well, it's yes, it, it's it's complicated, and we're talking to a <laughs> lot of clients about this the, the topic and the topics. I would say that we, on weighing in on social, political, geopolitical, national security issues, we typically work with clients and recommend a framework that looks at the two dimensions. One is severity and the other is relevance. And I would say that, you know, my, and I think if you, if you account for both of those, it's not, it's not necessarily precise to measure on each dimension but you get to the answer. You know, I, I, I would say that we've had, I've talked to more clients in recent years that where it's kind of like, oh, why do I have to weigh in on every little thing? Hasn't that been done? You know, the, the, the severity dimension kind of solves for that, which is to say, if you got another 9-11, your company is not gonna conduct your Monday morning staff meeting as if nothing happened. You're going to say something. if. If, uh, you know, if the United States uh, went back to the moon and people, you know, astronauts got stranded on the moon, you're going to address that. It is going to captivate the world. And so there's not, that's not a, you know, calibrating of when you weigh in or when you don't weigh in, I think is completely reasonable. And people may say, hey, we feel like we've been kind of too out there. We want to dial it back. But there, but that has a limit. There are going to be circumstances where it's, where you're going to be called to weigh in. I think the relevance is a dimension where a deep understanding of your stakeholders is super important, right? So universities, I would say, have discovered their miscalibration on that over the past couple of weeks is that they, they didn't really, that was a bit of a miss on their constituents. And, and the the attacks in Israel is a, a really interesting example of where, um, you know, the dimensionality of that for a country of that size is just really, really big. And the way that that, that the impact of that, of those attacks cascaded to um, Jewish people around the world is, is, you know, material and profound. And so I think that a lot of companies found themselves in a place where they they did have to weigh in on that um yeah and and matt is is relevance related to expertise in other words i i i see on these kinds of issues particularly let's take the the what's what started this which is the um, terrorist attack in israel um that to me seems to be severe and relevant right uh, to use your assessments uh, the broader issue of Israel and Palestine is a more complex one. Yes. And, and companies should be asking themselves, like, what expertise, if any, do I have to comment on that? Yes. Is that something you think about? Yes. I mean, in, in the, as the, you know, as the war rolls on, I think that most companies would not be well served and their stakeholders will, would not be well served by playing a role of providing 
color commentary on everything that that happens going forward. I think that you know um, the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of a, a degree of complexity where uh, you know companies need help on the traps that are out there, the nuances of the language. Um, it gets very complicated very quickly. And so, um, you know, having a, having a, some moral clarity at the front end of what happened, I think is important. Um, but you have to have an understanding of kind of the environment, the nuances and the history that's, that's, you know, that requires a degree of expertise that doesn't necessarily uh, sit with everybody. Yeah, another piece of the relevance, it would seem to me, too, is whether or not the companies themselves have near-term or long-term business or business interests um, in the region. And and I'm just kind of curious as to how do you weigh that in the mix of all of this? Yeah, I mean, you know, on some level, I actually, I think that's, um, you know, 100% correct. I mean, like we... I'll tell you some of the conversations that I've had are very interesting from a finance and fund perspective. You know, Mike, you're in the energy industry and obviously like that has, there's a lot of, you know, Middle Eastern focus of, of that industry. There's also the sovereign wealth funds that exist in the industry also are invested in a lot of finance funds in New York. And there's like a lot of complex relationships there. So I think, you know, that that goes to the point of really understanding your stakeholders very well, where I think one of it, you know, understanding what another way to think about some of these things is where do you have um, for whoever your stakeholders may be, where is there an expectation to speak up? And then what does your permission space look like to weigh in or not weigh in? You know, there are certain things that people expect from a, you know, shoe company. And there's certain things that expect from a global energy company. And, you know, you got to understand what your zone is for some of these things. Well, and, and, and you know, and, and it's a little bit of threading the needle. I mean, in some cases, to your earlier point, if you don't select the right words, um, it may hear it may hit some ears as Islamophobia, and or it could hit other ears as being anti-Semitic or uncaring. Yes, correct. I think that this was a yes. I think that this was a this was a the attacks were of a dimension where I think that I think and in the complexity of the region and the history is such that I think we're most. Um, most misses on the corporate side, particularly on the university side, was in kind of not uh, acknowledging the attacks for what they were yeah. in terms of uh, brutality and a sea change in a usual tit for tat. It wasn't that. And I think that people who missed probably dumped it into those categories without really taking a beat to understand what happened and what has changed. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter, 
You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. So I, I have another question. I have another question that's somewhat r- related, but it's probably also a very live question right now. If the conflict continues in Israel and Gaza through the end of November, what might you be saying to your clients about attending COP28 in Dubai, you know, yeah. which is currently scheduled to begin at the end of November and run through the middle of December? Yeah, it's interesting. Some of these topics have come up in terms of attendance. I think it's a, I think it's a, I know it's a recalibration for a number of, I think the thing to pay attention to is what the leaders of those nations say and do between now and then. Um, And understanding, having a, one, one of the things that I encourage clients to do and think about is use this moment before these decisions are upon you to sketch out your guardrails of, okay, if they say that we're going to do X, if they do this, we're going to do Y. It's much easier to both have a little bit of remove and objectivity when you plan that out in advance. And it, it honestly gives you a little bit of a baseline to work from when you know, you plan for A, you plan for B, you plan for C, and then like F happens. But at least you've planned on. <laughs> That's the way it always planned on a couple, yeah. um, and it gives you a reference. F happens <laughs> yeah. all the time to me. <laughs> exactly. So, so moving on to yet another political realm. Next year, uh, we'll have the presidential elections. You recently wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you wrote of the issues confronting um, President Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, and, and, and I quote, it's, all of this adds up to overflowing volatility and uncertainty. So throw out your old playbook and buckle up. How should companies buckle up for what? Yeah, we uh, yeah, it's we um, part of what we talked about in that is the idea of a what we're calling a double referendum election, which is that, you know, it's a sitting president against a former president, which hasn't happened since, uh, I guess, Grover Cleveland in like the 1890s. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I would say part of a way to understand the election, what's going to happen is that with two known quantities where there's not going to be much new information provided is that the dependency of the election is probably going to be a lot on kind of these external factors or X factors or whatever kind of crops into the political campaign. So I I just think that both with a volatile world and with the, the peculiar circumstance of, a, of the nature of this election, the propensity for kind of like a lot of um, black swan type events is, is really high, perhaps more so than other years. Um, you know, I don't, I, I got, I have, I would say anecdotally is that the, there was a, up until kind of the, um, Hamas attack on Israel, I would say that there's a bit of a quiet period on social political, um, not long, (laughs) it never seems to be long, but I don't think that most 
I don't think that most of my clients that I'm talking to are really thinking about the 2024 election yet actively. I think that that's, you know, we're right about a year out and that's when people generally usually start to think about it. The thing that I would say in preparation for it as a company is use the, the quote unquote quiet time now to both do some planning and lay down markers, right? And you are better off in a, a crisis or crisis-like situation being able to point back to predicates and precedent and the kind of the pieces that you say in the quiet times that that have a degree of kind of authenticity to them that that don't have that don't feel like knee jerk when something out of left field happens. And then you're like, oh, we've got a new policy, you know, and that's never the right time to make policy. You want to have some of these things considered. So, you know, uh, for for a lot of, of companies, it's, you know, think about like pack donations or that type of thing. It's like, you, what what is yeah. your policy on that going forward? And in a year out is a great time to send a or at the beginning of the year is a great time to send a note to employees to say, hey, we're entering an election year. Kind of here is how we're thinking about it and approaching it from a company. You know, we'll do this. We won't do that. We want you to do this. We don't want you to do that. Whatever, whatever some of those those guardrails and understandings are, because you know people will will often ask for or advocate for within the company a particular policy, and you don't want to be in a position where you're saying, "Oh, yeah, we'll we'll think about that in the moment." You just that's not the time to be doing that. Yeah. yeah. Now, isn't that somewhat complicated by what's going on in Congress now? I mean, you know, part of the analysis is, you know, this is a little bit of the relitigation coming out of the 2020 election. And, you know, are we just seeing sort of the, the first salvos of 2024 as the Republicans try to select a speaker? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a I think we're living through a period that is a there's a lot of shifting between and among the parties of, of power centers. There's a lot of change in society at the, at the moment. It just, you know, I think that, you know, ultimately our, our politics here in the U S and, and I should note that there are elections happening across the world in 2024. So, you know, our European colleagues mm-hmm. are tending to that as well, but, but there's a lot of change in the world and, our politics are kind of designed to reflect the tensions and difficulties that exist in society. And so we should expect that. We should expect on some level, if, you're, if your company is kind of representative of the populations in the places you work, you should expect those differences within your, your companies. I, I think actually that's one of the things to educate employees and customers on is like we have, we have every view within that you see playing out in the world around us. So so I I totally agree with you. I think it is going to be a a very hard fought and volatile year and I think that I think that that speaks to the importance of kind of creating some guardrails or baseline and understanding mm-hmm. with your different stakeholder groups to say here's how we're going to kind of approach this. 
Now, one of the big societal changes is the impact that AI is having on everything from communications to politics. Uh, you do a lot of work for finance and technology firms. You know, we read uh, the recent news, uh, Penta's launched a global AI task force. How is Penta coaching its clients on the role of AI and how best to leverage it? Yeah, I would, I, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think for communicators, people perceive it certainly uh, the generative models as kind of a there's there's two lenses to this there's the there's the communications disruption what does this do to the function right and then there's the role of mm -hmm. the technology in business and society where communications is a part of that story but is really talking about that part of the story and what that means you know some of the and we're dealing with it on both dimensions. I, I, on the, in terms of how it will impact business and society, you know, one of the conversations that we've been having with clients is if you roll back the clock to kind of the heyday of trade liberalization and you think ahead to the 20 mm -hmm. to 30 years that happened after the fact and what the impacts were, both kind of the positive and the negative and some of the complexities around that, if you were to assume that we are entering another 20 to 30 year period that will be disruptive on that dimension from AI, what would you do differently going forward, right? And this 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 uh, relates hmm. to some of the work that we do around trying to be predictive and thinking around the corner on some of this stuff. And we've had, you know, we have a we have one client that's been um, pretty aggressive in implementing AI tools among their workforce. And one of the top things that they're thinking about is how do we communicate to our employees about this and what their role is for this going forward. And, mm -hmm. you know, so there's the, that societal dimension. There's a regulatory dimension too, is how these platforms are regulated and what those uh, rules look like is the EU is pretty, is further ahead than the US on this. There's, you know, the joke is that it starts in the EU, then it goes to California, then ends up in Washington. So, you know, we're seeing a little bit of that happening um, and we're kind of working across um, all of those dimensions. Then there's the second dimension, which is communications itself and kind of the, the discipline and how it impacts that. Um, you know, our, parts of our company have done media analytics using machine learning for a while. That There's that. I think that kind of the large language models and emergence of generative content really has gotten people's attention in a different way, different visceral way. Um, you know, we're pushing it through our organization with, um, in particular, um, you know, summarization tools, I think are very effective using it. We're, we're having everybody do a first cut at content creation. You know, one of the ways that we talk about the way that our firm operates is, you know, you you want each level of the firm doing um, what they're capable of to drive efficiency for clients. So, like, you know, you don't want me writing your press release, but maybe coming up with the strategy. You want the associate doing the press release. But to be honest, you want the associate using AI to do a first cut of the strategy, right? Or not of the strategy, but of the, uh, the press release. One of the ways that I, I've been talking about it with people, and uh, this lands... Um, better for my generation than for newer generations. But if you, 
if you remember, if you grew up in an era where high fidelity audio was a thing, okay, so I, I had friends who had amps and, you know, this is the era of CD and, you know, the, the fidelity to the sound and this sort of stuff. And then... My uh, Matt, we're talking yeah. vinyl. Oh, from my yeah. eye, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you know you 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 understand you understand the world of of audio systems and people putting effort into that stuff. And then the iPod came along, and surprise, nobody cares about that anymore after a minute. And the reason is that the the value proposition of carrying around a thousand songs in your pocket is so strong that nobody cares anymore. And the thing that I've been talking to people about is that, you know, okay, yeah, you can do a, you can do a great job writing X, but is it 10 times better than what AI can cook up? And if it is, that's great. And if it's not, then you're doing it wrong because it's it's that scale right. of transformation where it might be maybe it's crappier around the edges but like it happens in 2 minutes versus 2 hours is that that's just a, such a different dimension that you have to think differently about the work and how you approach the work i'll give you one other one other quick example on ai and that i think uh, illustrates some of the change that's going to happen mike you had referenced polling earlier the reason we do multiple choice polling, when you think about it, is because if you did a, if you just did a literal interview with a thousand people, it would be prohibitive to read through the transcripts of all of those interviews as a person to go synthesize, okay, here's kind of the finding. But that's not true anymore. Yeah. There's a world where polling may actually just be a thousand kind of automated interviews summarized by AI that then drives the takeaways. <laughs> and well, you so, might actually get a better understanding. Yeah. I, so, you know, <laughs> one of the, I mean, like typically, and this is, is you'll, you have like, you have focus groups to kind of test ideas and kick it around and you have polling to test <laughs> it at scale for statistical value. Right. Well, that, that may just be breaking down before our eyes because you can do a, you can do a synthesized focus group of a thousand people now. So I just think that there's there's ways that, and we can't even know all the applications that are come, but there's just going to be ways where the, the transformation of the discipline will be, I think, pretty profound. Well, Matt, can we, that's amazing to me. And I am so far behind <laughs> I'm sort of a Luddite on on AI. I've been shopping around, by the way, for a great AI course. Your, your old school, MIT, offers lots of online yeah. understanding, uh, courses in understanding AI and business strategy and that kind of thing. If I had the time, I'd, I'd certainly enroll. Uh, and we're, we're not struggling. I don't, we shouldn't use the word struggling. We're at places like BU, where we teach communication, um, trying to find ways to make it productive yeah. and, and a learning experience for students. But yet we have the issue of uh, originality of yes. the content that's produced by students. And so there's all kinds of questions about this. But I want to take a step back, Matt, 
and and on the bigger picture on AI, you wrote a piece, I believe it was on Penta's website, uh, entitled, Can AI Be the Cure for Economic Disease? And I was intrigued by that. What, what What's the disease? And is is AI the cure? Yeah, so this is this is so this is interesting. There's a uh, there's an economic um, phenomenon called uh, Balmol's cost disease, right? And this that this dates to I guess the '60s. And um, the idea is that uh, in sectors that do not have high rates of productivity, the cost can still go up because of kind of spillover effects from sectors that do mm-hmm. have high rates of productivity. Okay. So, so think about it this way is that you're a tech person making tons of money in Silicon Valley in the, because of all the, you know, advances and productivity and all this cool stuff happening. You're gonna like, you're gonna buy a nice house. You're going to be like sending your kids to private school. You're going to be, you know, having like concierge mm-hmm. medicine or whatever these sectors that have kind of a one-to-one scaling thing versus a like large scale scaling still increase in cost because even with, if there's not increased productivity, right? So it's this spillover effect of the stuff that even if there's, if there's productivity anywhere in the economy, you spend more money on the stuff that doesn't mm-hmm. have productivity. Gains. So that's one way of understanding things like uh, cost of college, Right, things like um, you know increasing costs of healthcare, right? And you think about these things, and like you know, you know, Gary, you're a professor now. It's like there's there's kind of limits to how much you can engage mm-hmm. with any one person. And the I think the interesting thing is to contemplate whether AI can help mm. solve some of these problems in terms of like. You think about medicine and the diagnostic abilities. You think about education and um, AI can provide an individual tutor for right. every person. Research assistant, Infant, right? Right. In many ways, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's there's just ways in which some of these traditional sectors that, because they're very people-centered, have challenges scaling, is that... AI can, in theory, provide a, a scale benefit to that. Like law is another example of where, like, you know, lawyers got to write the brief. Well, okay, if that really dials up the productivity, then then you could have scaling benefits on these very people-heavy disciplines that could help increase productivity, which which is good. And some supply chains work that way, too, in terms of if you stop and think about like a ship that's taking, you know, soy from Brazil to Europe. Well, that ship comes back with steel. All of a sudden, these two commodities are somewhat linked. And we might not know that if if, if we didn't have access to that information. Yeah. And Matt, what's the name of the theory you mentioned? Uh, it's called Balmol's cost disease. William was the economist. You know, economics. listeners, you come for communications <laughs> and you get economic theory. That is so, uh, I feel like we've just taken a step up the intellectual <laughs> ladder here, Matt. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Mike, why don't you make your question the last one? Because he, uh, uh, Matt has answered the 
the communications part of it. It's been said that Penta has, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been said that Penta has borrowed from management consulting on how to bring their strategies into the communication space. I, I know you worked for McKinsey uh, years ago, but I'm curious as to what this really means and that some of the big consulting firms at different points have made efforts to get into change communications and other areas of communications. And some have had some success, some not so successful. So what does it mean to bring management consulting strategies into the communication space? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I would say that the, look, one of the biggest things that we do on that front is start with talent. And so, you know, one of the biggest pieces that we've kind of taken from that world is a very aggressive recruiting program and, and then training program, right? So, you know, we have a week long onboarding for everybody who comes to work here. It is a broad training set from kind of how to, you know, the basics of like, using Excel and using data to the theory of communications and, you know, kind of everybody gets like uh, leveled up on all the things, but, but we also do on-campus recruiting, you know, so we're on in the fall on campuses kind of alongside McKinsey and their ilk doing recruiting for undergrads. And I think that, you know, we've, we've had a lot of success with that in terms of really trying to skill up the discipline. Um, you know, it's part of the approach there is a, is a high volume uh, recruiting approach. So we have probably a thousand people apply every fall for, you know, whatever it may be, a couple dozen slots or that type of thing. And that, that really has a lot of benefit in terms of just building a, an exceptional cohort of people who can kind of, to Gary's point, kind of wrestle through problems and understand problems. It's very helpful in uh, achieving kind of a representative team of the kind of geographies that we operate in, you know, the, in our discipline, um, diversity Hmm. in terms of background and and perspective and uh, is very, very important to be able to communicate to different audiences. So it really helps with that. And we just have a, we have a very structured approach. So, you know, our, uh, interviewing includes um, case interviews, so people do math in the interview, you know, which is, I will say from personal experience, is one of the most stressful things you'll ever do in your life. But, um, but you know, that's that's kind of part of how we, part of what we've kind of borrowed from the management consulting world and how we approach the, the talent. Dimension. Matt, uh, just to to wrap up here, and I, I should have asked this at the top of the interview, how many how many people. Uh, at Penta, and where's where are your offices located? Yeah, we are we are just shy of 400 globally. Um, you know, our biggest offices are are kind of uh, DC, New York, <laughs> London, and Brussels. I would say, um, but we also have offices in uh, San Francisco, in Dublin, in um, Singapore, and Hong Kong. So it's a pretty broad. Uh, reach globally. Terrific. Well, Matt, this has been fascinating, and we've we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you for being on the crux of the story. Thank you both for having me on. It was a great conversation. And for our listeners, uh, tune in again uh, next week for 
episode 111 of the crux of the story thanks everybody thanks mike thanks for listening to the crux and make sure to listen for our next episode follow us at the crux on facebook and on twitter and you can find our episodes on soundcloud and on our website thecruxpodcast.org